it's really, um, I wish I could take credit for that, because uh, I was their youth pastor, but I know better, uh, because I knew Joy uh, growing up, and so, man, it's awesome to see our students sort of going on in life, and giving uh, their time, their energy towards something bigger. And uh, were those luchadors? Nice. Um, I've been to Mexico a couple times, uh, once with Joy, and uh, she's not lying about the food. Uh, if you're looking for sort of an entry point into missions, Mexico is a great place to start. They feed you well. Uh, it's kind of like staying in a, a nice hotel as opposed to Haiti, which is more like uh, living in a, uh, roughing it a little bit. So, um, guys, my name is Ian. Um, I'm, I'm going to be up here way too much today, uh, to be honest. Uh, and it's not really the goal. Uh, but Craig will be back next week, so if you want to hear uh, what our, our senior pastor sounds like, I invite you to come in two weeks, actually, because we've got one more week with uh, Doug Schoenberger uh, to come up. But it, we've, we've had a great month with him being away. We've been praying for him uh, as he seeks out some vision, as he gets some rest. We've uh, been praying for him and his family, so a couple more weeks. Uh, but we have a great opportunity to hear what God is speaking today. Um, I'm the student pastor here. I do the worship here. That's what I do. Uh, so if you don't know me, that's what's going on here today. Um, but while we are working, uh, let's turn over to Second Peter. Um, not, not a book in the Bible that we turn to a lot. It's way in the back. If you come to John, you've gone too far. If you come to First John, excuse me, you've gone too far. You know, I find, it, I find it incredible the way that God has chosen to reveal himself, his will to us. Now, here's what we do often. We turn the Bible into this sort of uh, book of ethereal truths. Like Jesus came, and he was sitting on a mountain, and he was just sort of hypothesizing about the world. To all these people who were like, what's he saying? Like, we have no idea what he's talking about. And we kind of turn the Bible into this, this sort of book that, okay, so how do we respond to certain situations? Because ultimately, we, we want to know the answer to the question, what, what are we supposed to do? There's a gentleman that comes to Jesus in the book of Luke, and he asks Jesus, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think, I think on some level, this is the question that we're all asking. Uh, it's okay, God, that's great, you're big, you're mighty, you're strong, all that's fantastic. What do you want from me? Right? And, and so I find that the way that the Bible has presented God's character, his will, to be a little bit almost counterintuitive to that. Um, you see, uh, the Bible is not this, this mind to be, uh, to be sort of picked at. We find little jewels of truth. In fact, uh, if, if you've been to a nation like Haiti, you see when the resources are misused that you actually um, can, can break the cycle that, that should produce life. So in Haiti, uh, they have stripped the soil so greatly through, and, and through erosion, through things going on. Um, today, even still, you can look at the mountains and you can see that there's, they're, they're barren. And these, these, these mountains are supposed to be producing uh, life and, 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 fertility and fruit for the people. But they're not because they, they, they weren't mined carefully. They weren't, uh, they weren't mined with, with the future in mind. And so sometimes we, t we kind of do this to the Bible. We take little truths. We take little things out of there, little half-truths. We take verses and kind of make them say things that they don't. But the Bible, in all of this, is not really working in this way. So much of the Bible is story. So much of the Bible is, is narrative. Um, 
And when we take these verses, when we take these things out of their context, uh, we are distorting the truth of what God is saying. And, and what it does, I think, is it begins to cloud our picture of who God is. You see, God is, is beautiful and true, revealed fully in the Bible. But when we, when we take individual parts, I think we take pieces of God's beautiful truth away. Um, one of the reasons I love to teach the Bible is, is because I just love literature. Like, I, I love to read a good story, something that makes me think, something that makes me feel. Uh, if you've ever read um, Charles Dickens, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, one of my favorite moments in all of literature is Sidney Carton, this, this sort of reprobate attorney who's been a drunk, he's been a, a mess up his whole life. And he has this moment where he decides, I don't, I don't want to ruin the story for you, but he decides to do something remarkable. He has this moment of redemption, and he's wandering the streets of Paris the night before he knows that he is going to do this amazing thing. And he's, he's, he's quoting to himself, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He's quoting the words of Jesus. It, it's an amazing, amazing moment. If you've ever read uh, The Brothers Karamazov by, by Dostoevsky, there's this, there's this whole uh, n- uh, novel and story wrapped up around the redemption of this family. That's beautiful. I find that the stories I'm drawn to have redemption at their heart, that, that everything is not broken, that, that, that stuff can be put back together again. And I see this going on in the Bible. But I think sometimes when we, when we take out individual parts, when we miss the overall story of what's going on, we miss what God is trying to show, uh, uh, show to us. We miss that God is trying to reveal himself uh, to us. The Bible is presenting history And it's a history of how God has dealt with his people, and he's inviting us as its modern hearers, as the people that are looking back into what happened, uh, not just to see, uh, here's, do this, don't do that, not just to see those things, but to see the character of God as fully revealed in Jesus Christ. And so, uh, as we begin today, we're going to move into a, a passage of scripture that may not necessarily seem like that. So just bear with me. Uh, Stories are the currency of our society, the stories of our lives, Uh, the the things that happen to us today, uh, the things that happen to us uh, that we think are going to happen to us tomorrow, our hopes, our fears, the jokes that we tell, maybe something that happened to you when you were young. These are the things that shape us, they make us. You see, stories make us who we are, and the more that we are able and willing to share our stories, the more that we are actually known. The more that we are actually known, the more that we can be actually loved. And I think that we miss the point that God is actually doing something like this with us. He's not just saying that, um, you know, I I am holy, I am eternal, so therefore behave in this way. He's saying, here is who I am. Here is my character. Here is my will revealed to you. Through, through my dealings with people, with people in flesh and blood, real everyday people. And he's revealing his character and his will to us. God wants to show us that he, he has redeemed the whole world, that he is inviting us to see a new heavens, a new earth, to live in a world that is, that is peaceful and, and, and where he reigns forever and ever. So it's with this idea of story in mind that we're going to turn to a text that doesn't honestly seem like story at all. Uh, in fact, I think a lot of us have this trouble with the New Testament. I think it's one of the reasons that we read the New Testament so readily is because it seems like Peter and Paul and John, they're telling us what we should do. 
And we like that about Paul, right? Like, I, I, I want to know exactly what you want from me, God. And Paul seems to be, in some way, you know, even though sometimes we have to peel back the layers, seems to be in some way doing that. We're going to turn over to 2 Peter. And, and I have to be honest, I, I was looking for a passage of scripture I hadn't spent a lot of time in. And so up until the last couple of weeks, I hadn't really dealt with this particular passage. So I'm excited to, to uh, sort of dig through it here today as we unpack it. Uh, but I find that when we allow the story of God to be the background for some of the things that we read, uh, maybe there's something bigger going on here. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ had received a faith as precious as ours. Now, here's what we do. And we do this with the Bible a lot, and, and, and it's, un, it's unfortunate to some degree, but we have, to, we have to sometimes get behind what's going on. So this word, righteousness, not a word that we use a lot, not a word that we're all really aware of. I know with our students, sometimes I'll just stop them and be like, what does that word mean? Because if you don't know what that word means, then maybe you miss the whole meaning of what Peter was saying there. So uh, let's peel back the layers on this word righteousness a little bit. Anytime you see the phrase righteousness of God, I would suggest that there was a much larger story in view. Um, uh, many people have translated righteousness simply as a moral quality, that God does what is right. Makes sense, right? Um, and, and I think that that definition certainly, certainly is valid, but I don't know if it, it to tells the whole story. Um, th that definition holds weight, but I think there's more going on. You see, righteousness, beyond simply saying that God does, does what is right, grounds God in the history of his people. The term belongs in the setting of the Hebrew law court. And so many of the phrases that Peter and Paul use are not just like, okay, let's, let's see what happens here, let's try to figure this out. They are terms from their everyday life. Like, like if you were to talk about, like if you were writing scripture, which, you know, some of you I'm sure will, uh, and you were talking about Facebook and Instagram, like those kinds of things, that means something to us, right? Like, and if Paul was reading that, he'd be like, what? I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and we do this, this happens to us in the Bible sometimes, because this term righteousness is directly out of the Hebrew law court. You see, in Jewish law, there are three parties. Uh, there's the judge who is deciding the case. His word is final. He will ultimately determine the fate of, of the other two parties. The plaintiff, the person who is saying that you have done wrong, that, that I have a cause for grievance, and the defendant, the person who is accused of doing the wrong. And the judge will decide between them. Righteousness, when it is applied to the judge, means a, a couple very important things. And I think when we see this in the context of the overall story, it's even more important. Righteousness applied to the judge means that the judge is impartial. He tries the case according to the law. He punishes sin as it deserves. He supports and upholds those who are defenseless and who have no one but him to plead their case. This is what this term righteousness means when it is applied to the judge. Now righteousness when it's applied to the other two parties, to the plaintiff or the defendant, means essentially that they have been given, uh, the verdict has been weighed in their favor. That they have been deemed righteous by the judge in this particular setting. So, when, when the, this term, the righteousness of God, is applied to, to, to God, and we see it here in Peter, um, it's demonstrated in Christ. He is impartial. 
He has tried the case according to the law. He punishes sin as it deserves. He supports and upholds those who are defenseless, who have no one but him to plead their cause. This is, this is an absolute definition of what the cross was all about. He is impartial, even at the point when it was going to cost him everything. He did not withhold his only son, whom he loves deeply. He, he knew that the only way to pay for sin was through the, the righteous offering, the, the, the sinless offering of his son, and he did not withhold that at that moment. He punishes sin as it deserves. If you read about the cross, it is bloody, it is messy. Surely there's some wrath being poured out. Jesus cries out, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that moment, he is bearing the full weight of God's wrath. He's punishing sin. This, this speaks to God's justice, right? That God, even when it costs him everything, will do what is right. He will do what he has promised to do. He supports and upholds those who are defenseless. Jesus went to the cross for you and me. Because we were so mired in, in the death and the chains of our sin that he came and he died for us. We were defenseless in his court. We could not stand. The word Satan means accuser. It means that he is pointing to us in the heavenly law court and saying, they are broken, they are sinful, they are rebellious. And Jesus is saying, I paid for that. The, the term righteousness of God is not just saying that God does what is right. Yes, absolutely. It's saying so much more than that. And it's important, I think, that we realize this because I think sometimes we read the Bible in these, in these different compartments. And we don't see it as one unique and, and, and a wholesome story. So, um, God creates the world, right? Adam and Eve. Like, we, we don't even get three chapters in and they're already messing up, right? And, and it's like, oh, you know, God's like, oh, I never saw this one coming. Oh, man. Um, okay. Um, well, I guess we'll go a couple chapters later. God, God literally says he's, he's so... He's so disappointed, he's so, he sees the way that his creation acts, that they're rebellious, that they're unfaithful all the time. It literally says in, in Genesis 6 that he is sorry that he made them. And he sends a flood upon the world uh, to recreate, to start over with this guy Noah. And then a couple generations later, it turns out that they're, they're wicked, they, they go their own way. Oh man, dang, okay, uh, this is not working out. Alright, uh, so Abram, Abram, right? Okay, so I'll make my covenant with you, and you will follow me. And Abram doesn't trust all the time, he, he goes his own way. Oh man, uh, God's really striking out here, right? Like, like, somebody should fire God. Like, he keeps messing up. Then we go to Exodus, right? And, and, and God redeems the people from slavery. They literally walk through walls of water. You think that would be enough to sustain them, for them to do the right thing. He gives them the law and he says, this is what it means for you to be my people. And they, you know, Exodus 32, not, not long after, they're already going their own way, worshiping a golden calf. In fact, in like Exodus 17, they're already complaining they don't have anything to eat. They've just walked through this wall of water and they're already whining that maybe God can't provide food for them. I mean, dude, God is not doing so well at this point. And so we think, <laughs> We think that God like, is, is, is sort of enduring all these failures, and then he's like, okay, what, what do we have left? Oh, Jesus, get up here. Hey, come here, Jesus. Hey, uh, I can't seem to fix this. Can, can, you, can you get down there and show them how to live? Can you show them uh, what it means to be my people? But, but when we see the righteousness of God, when we see his story walked with his people, then we see that Jesus is not some haphazard, um, like, oh, I guess we'll, we'll try this. That Jesus is actually the point. 
that he is the climax of the story, the climax of the covenant that God made with Israel. And, and this is the amazing thing about the way that God works. He is not, he is not trying to just um, get us to do the right things. He wants to partner with us. He wants to uh, be in community and relationship with us. And so the righteousness of God speaks to his faithfulness. He is faithful even when we are faithless. Romans 5, that, that even at the moment when we were the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. 1 John says that, brothers, I write, I write so that you will not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate before the Father. He is faithful when we are faithless. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who cannot understand our weaknesses, our suffering. We have one who has been through every trial, every temptation. This is the beginning of God's righteousness that he has already accomplished. The redemption of all things. And so it does not depend on us. It does not depend on our effort. We put our trust, our faith in the fact that he is faithful when we are faithless. Philippians 1, he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. God is faithful. And I think so often, this is where we stop. We, we understand in some, in some way that God has he died for us. Like he gave his son for us. And, and, and if I just acknowledge that, if I just pray some kind of prayer, then, then somehow that, that's for me. Right? And, and I think so many of us, we stop there. But I think if we look at these passages, like we're going to read in Peter, with the background of God's story with his people in mind, then we will see that God is calling us to something so much better. 2 Peter 1.3, Peter writes, His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and virtue. He's given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him. You see, Jesus is not simply concerned with getting people saved. This is often been the terminology we use. Yes, we have seen because of God's righteousness, because he is faithful, that, that we are pronounced uh, clean in his sight. Because God has already tried the case. Hebrews says that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. The case has been tried. It has been found. He has been vindicated by his resurrection. Yes, we stand before him clean today because of what Jesus did. If we will uh, believe that and appropriate that for our lives. But Jesus is not just concerned that you will show up in heaven one day when you get through the end of your life. Yes, Jesus is inviting us into a larger story. And perhaps an example from Israel's past will help. We're going to go back to the Exodus. I'm just going to kind of summarize a little bit of it for you. See, in Exodus, the people of Israel are miraculously redeemed from slavery. They walk through a wall of water. Uh, they're, they're in God's presence. There's this weird uh, cloud by day and fire by night. They can see God leading them. And I think a lot of us are like, can we get the, the cloud and the fire? That'd be great. You know, then I would know. Then I would know that what I'm doing is not crazy. Um, he, is, he is taking them away from 400 years of slavery, from 400 years of, of just fighting to exist, from 400 years of being told that they were not people, but they were property. God is leading them away from this. He is healing their souls. He's letting them just kind of breathe a little bit. They've been building and working and, and fighting and striving for so long. And they eventually come to the mountain. And God is inviting his people already redeemed, already free, to meet him so he can speak to all of them directly. 
You see, he knows that the whole world is still in bondage. He knows that, that just as Israel has gone through this, this physical liberation, this physical redemption, that the rest of the world still is, is, is in bondage to, to idolatry, to rebellion from who God made them to be. And he says to them in Exodus 19, he says, You, Israel, you, the people I have saved, you, the people I have redeemed, will be for me a nation of holy priests. Priest. Interesting. I, I don't know that you've thought of yourself as a priest. I certainly haven't. Uh, when I was, I, I had the honor of doing my uh, my cousin's wedding a couple months ago, and my grandfather uh, grew up as a as sort of a charismatic word of faith uh, teacher, and then he became an Episcopalian, went to, to completely the other way, and so he has this he has this collar, and he's like, do you want to do you want to wear my my collar? <laughs> and I was like, well. I don't know if that's the look they're going for, Grandfather, but you know, I really appreciated this. But you know, that, that's about as close to priesthood as I've ever gotten in my mind. But it says that you, you will be a nation of holy priests. Peter will say in 1 Peter that be holy as I am holy. And, and what I want you to see, guys, is God is not looking. He's just looking to redeem people. He is able to do that, and he has done that. And I hope you can see like, that, that, that case, that whole situation is already decided. He is looking to empower people. God's not just looking for parishioners. He's looking for priests. A priest is someone who shows the world what his God looks like, what his God cares about. You want to know what, what's important to a God? Go, well, go to the temple where that God is being worshipped. You want, you want to talk to somebody about you know, what different religions believe? You know, a good place to start is somebody who, who not only practices that religion, but teaches that religion, right? And God seems to be putting us in this position. You will be, for me, a nation of holy priests. And I think the message of Peter that we are about to wade deeper into is that God, through his faithfulness to his covenant, the fact that he's not just looking to, to say, okay, you're, you're, you're good, you're clean, all right, see you later. That he's given us everything that we need to live a life that proclaims his goodness and his glory. And the only way we can really mess that up, the only way you can really fail at that, it's to do nothing. But I think the first step is understanding that God is not looking to give you some magical ticket to heaven. Like, like the Monopoly get out of free car, get out of jail free card. We think like, okay, I've got Jesus, so I can go do whatever the heck I want. And then, uh, but, but I got the card, right? Like the, Paul would be like, sitting there like, are you crazy? Peter would be like, dude, I got crucified upside down. Are you, are you sure? Are you sure that's how this works? And guys, I, I, I just want to press a little bit because I think some of us, we fall into this really easily. And here's why. It's because this is what we're shown, right? And so I hope as a church, as a people of God, that we are not allowing this to, to, to exist in our, in our context, in our uh, environment here. Let's go on in, in Peter here. Verse 4. Though he has given us, through, through these, excuse me, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, I just want to point out, when, when the Bible talks about the world, um, uh, some Christians have gotten off on this, on this thing that's like, okay, the world's evil, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put myself in my little shelter, and you know, like the bomb shelters in the 50s, and we'll, we'll wait for, the, for it all to go away. Uh, Jesus' Jesus's prayer in John says that, Father, I don't pray that you'll take them out of the world. I pray that you'll be, you'll be comforting and guiding them in the world. And so, guys, you are stuck here. You are put here for a reason. 
But the, the world is not something we're trying to escape from. The world, in biblical terms, is the place that is not submitted to God's lordship. So John will talk a lot about the world. And it doesn't mean the, the, the world that God made is still good. The world that God made and he created is a good, and, and, and he has called it good, and he will call it good again. When he says, behold, I make everything new, Jesus says that in Revelation. But I want you to see that, that, that this, this passage here is talking about uh, the age to come. Because the world is not submitted to God's lordship, because it, it is corrupted by evil desires, then it carries within it the seeds of what it is to become. Um, being, living apart from God is participating in death. If you read Romans 5, Paul, Paul talks a lot about this. That there's, two, there's two ways here. Either you're, either you're going the way of life or you're going the way of, of death. And so what, what Peter is saying here is that the world is, is showing itself for what it will become. It is wasting away. It is perishing. But for those who, who cling to the promises that God has shown, for those who pursue God's holiness and his goodness... We will participate in the divine nature. And then Peter says something, I think, uh, especially for you know, 21st century Protestants that we have some trouble with. Verse 5, for this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. But wait, make every effort? I, I thought I was saved by grace alone and that anything beyond that is, is a work, right? That, that, that's the thing we push against, right? Like is, is there's, there's works. And, and it's nothing we can do that we are redeemed and saved by the blood of Christ. And, and what I want to point out today is those two things aren't mutually exclusive. Like the fact that there is nothing you can do, that Jesus has paid the cost, that he has done the hard work as we've, as we've seen in the righteousness of God, that he has decided the case in our favor because of the faithfulness of his son, is not mutually exclusive to us having a responsibility in this matter. You see, when God takes the people out of, Israel, out of Egypt from slavery, he doesn't just say, okay, good luck. No, he invites them to be holy as he is holy. He invites them to be a nation of, of priests. And he says, look, there, there are promises, there are blessings for those who, who will follow after me. But if you go your own way, then you're going to end up in a place where you, you don't want to be. You're going to end up back in Egypt, back in slavery. And so how do we deal? How do we deal with this kind of phrasing that Peter uses? Is, is, it, is it based on us? Is it a work? Um, I, I, no. Like, I hope you hear me. Like, Jesus has paid the cost. But I also want to suggest that, that maybe God is inviting us into a larger story. And, and we've already established from Peter that, that, yes, our faith is based on the righteousness of God revealed in Christ. He is faithful when we are faithless. Don't ever miss that point. Yes and amen. But I think, Peter, what, what he's saying doesn't stop there. You are to live a godly life. And, and here's the beauty in what Peter is saying about making every effort. If you look back in verse 3, it, it says, um, His divine power has given us, what's that word? Everything you need. Like again, the only way that you can fail at this is not trying. He has given us everything that we need to live a godly life. Basically, he's saying you will succeed because God has given you everything that you need. Christ's grace is so great, though, that it demands a response from us. And I think so many of us, we see God's faithfulness, his righteousness revealed in Jesus, and we stop there. We're like, yeah, I want that. Um, I, I want Jesus as Savior, but I'm not sure I want him as Lord. Because that becomes a different thing. Oh, take up your cross and follow me? Um, 
I'm going to go Dickens again. In the book, uh, Great Expectations. Uh, somebody know Pip? Yeah, Pip. I'm, I feel like I'm talking to like 10th graders. Did, uh, some of you guys who are older, more, more advanced in life, did you all have to read that book in school, Great Expectations? Okay, just curious. Uh, now, Pip, Pip is a peasant young man. I, sometimes the names in Dickens make me laugh. Pip, peasant young man with aspirations of being a blacksmith. That's all he knows. His uncle's a blacksmith. He lives with his uncle. He wants to be a blacksmith. Um, but uh, I'm not going to ruin this story for you either because I encourage you to read. Um, through a turn of events, Pip is granted a trust fund uh, through a benefactor. His life takes a turn. No longer is he just going to be a blacksmith, but his benefactor has deemed that he should go to London and learn how to be a gentleman. I mean, he just came into some money, right? He's like, all right. And, and he comes into a, a great fortune. He sets, off, um, he sets off for London, and his whole reality changes. Um, all in response to these, these gracious gifts that he's been given. He has, he has a suspicion of who he thinks has given him these things. Uh, it turns out that he may not be correct. But he, he responds to the great gifts given to him. He responds to these things. And, and the language that Peter is using is this exact kind of language. Um, in, in ancient cities, it was common for them to sort of have like a city god. And, and actually in Chinese culture, this still goes on today. But they think that because of, the, but because of the gifts, because of the grace of a certain deity, that they have been blessed beyond other cities, and that they are, are, are sort of the uh, clients of a patron god. And so the, uh, the t- town of Ephesus, uh, located in Asia Minor, they, were the, they, they viewed Artemis as their patron, the one who had blessed them. And Peter's using this language in, in 2 Peter here. He's saying that God is your benefactor, that he has given you everything that you need to live for him, that he has blessed you so greatly and so richly. But you have to respond. You have to do something with that knowledge, with those gifts, with that grace that he has given you. And, and if you don't, then he's going to stop giving them to you. And this is the language that Peter is using. So Peter writes, in light of God's gracious gifts, and because the world that, that is apart from God has been corrupted and will waste away, we should make every effort, try hard to live lives that look like God. And then he presents a list of qualities that God's people should exhibit. Now it's important to realize that, that this isn't um, like, like studying different sections for a test. And it's like, okay, once I get the, the goodness down, then I'll work on the virtue. Uh, Benjamin Franklin tried that. It did not work out so well for him. He's like, I will, I will work on one virtue like for a month at a time. And he found that he could get some of them down. And then he would look back on the other ones that he thought he'd already mastered and realize that he was lapsing in those areas. Um, it doesn't work like that. But, but what God is trying to show us through Peter here is that as he's recreating us, as he's redeeming us, he's making us into something new. He's doing this all at once. And so he, he writes in uh, verse 5, it says, For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith the goodness, and to goodness, self-control. Um, that word goodness, I, I think, is better translated as virtue. Uh, virtue is something that, that is, uh, is, is hard work. It takes dedication. Um, uh, the, the ancients looked at the virtues as something to be uh, strived for. Virtue holds a goal in mind, and it works towards that goal. Now, let me just say, when I was younger, I, um, I was convinced, along with some of my friends, that we, I, I looked at the landscape, and I determined what career path I wanted to go down. And for me, it was quite obvious. Professional basketball player. 
Now, because, because clearly, I, I love to play basketball, so that was no-brainer. And then I found out you make like millions of dollars, which I also thought was awesome. Um, so, basketball all the time, millions of dollars, easy choice. I told this to my father. He, uh, he was like, well, because he knows where the genes come from, um, was like, well, son, that's quite a difficult uh, occupation to succeed in. Many, many people try and fail all the time. And, and what he's trying to say is, son, you, are, you might be six feet tall. Uh, nobody in our family can run or jump, uh, which might be a problem. Um, he knows this, but he's trying to tell a 12-year-old this very, very lovingly and very carefully. You know, he doesn't want to be the dad who, who crushes his son's dreams. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, I'm not a professional basketball player. I blame my parents. Um, I'm, I'm going to counseling now because I, I see what was going on there. Uh, but, no, my dad knew. My dad knew that I did not possess a little something we call talent. And, and I think a lot of us, when we, come to the, when we come to what it means to follow Christ, we think that there is some innate talent that we've been, that didn't get passed on to us. Right? We think that God is picking teams, and he, he well, I don't know why he'd pick me, so I guess I'll just kind of sit on the sidelines and kind of, you know, I'll cheer the people on who, are, who seem to be doing some cool stuff. I, I, I mean, I guess. I, it's just not for me. We see these guys who are walking in faith. We see them in our own lives. We see, you know, Joy spend some time in Mexico. And we're like, wow, that's cool. I could never do anything like that. It's terrifying. You know, I, I, there's crazy stuff going on in Mexico, right? And we think that God has withheld something from us. But first, or 2 Peter 3 stands against that. He says that we have been given everything that we need for a life of godliness. That, that, that there's not talent involved. God, your benefactor, God, the, the gracious giver of gifts has given you everything that you need. And so Peter says that we uh, have been given everything and adding virtue, adding goodness to our faith is acknowledging that this is true by the way that we spend the time in our lives. You see, so many of us think that we just wake up suddenly one day and we're godly. You know, we wake up one day and we're like, I'm not struggling with sin anymore. This is awesome. We just float through life. Or like, like we sit down and pray and it's like, oh, it's been two hours. I didn't even recognize it. It's amazing. It doesn't work like that. And, and guys, like I would say that nothing in your life works like that. Like very few of us are savants at anything, right? Like very few of us have this innate ability to do anything great. Like, oh, you want to play guitar? Come pick this up. Like unless you've played a little bit, that's not going to go well for you. You're probably not going to want to do that in front of a bunch of people. Oh, you want to be a professional athlete? Go just walk out in the Super Bowl. That's going to hurt. Like those guys didn't just show up and start playing football. They've worked, they've sacrificed every day. And guys, I think we miss sometimes that following Jesus is a sacrifice. The kingdom starts when we start to bleed a little bit. And God is inviting us, not, not to this like miserable existence where it's like, okay, God, I guess I'll follow you so I can be more godly. This is terrible. God's not doing that. He's inviting us into more peace, into more freedom, into more truth as we seek him. But yes, it does take a, a dedicated uh, response on our part to seek him. Like you're not just going to suddenly wake up one day and realize how godly you are. If you never take time to hear God's voice, if you never take time uh, to serve and to give uh, the gifts, the time that you've been given, Peter, Peter's going to have something to say to that here in just a moment. But add to your faith virtue. 
I think some of the songs we sing say this quite well. Isaac Watts says that love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You know, we sing that. We sang that last week, actually. We see that the, the Lord our God is, is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. This is the prayer that the, the Jewish people still pray today. And guys, this, this sort of love that is so great, that is so beautiful, demands something of us. Makes sense. Make every effort. Add to virtue knowledge. Now, I just want to, I'm going to hit a couple of these, and I'd love to hit more of them more, but we don't have time for that. But knowledge, knowledge in the biblical sense is not just, not just with our heads, it's experience. Now, the word for know in the Old Testament, King James Version, is, you know, a little bit R-rated, okay? Uh, you can figure that out for yourself. Uh, but to know somebody is, you know, something else going on there. Some of you got that. Um, knowledge in the biblical sense is experience. But, but let me just say this, that, that God is not trying to somehow circumvent your brain and be like, okay, here's, you know, here's everything that scientific research says, but here's God. Like, we've made these false distinctions so much, and they create these problems that maybe never were meant to be there. Genesis is not trying to tell you the, the science of how the world was made. It just isn't. It's a poem. Genesis 1 is, is speaking about who did it. And how graciously and how amazingly he did it. And so you do not have to put that on one side and then put scientific knowledge on the other side and be like, okay, I don't know what to do. God seems to be saying this. You don't have to make those distinctions as the people of God. I'm just, I'm freeing you from that here this morning. Knowledge is not something that God is trying to work around. Paul will say, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. That God is actually, he knows he gave you a brain, he wants you to use it. Add to your uh, virtue, knowledge. Add to knowledge, self-control. The image of this self-control is actually guarding the, the, the places that stuff can come into your body. So like your eyes, your mouth. Uh, so uh, their eyes are filled with adultery and evil, Peter will write in the second chapter. He says their mouths speak blasphemies. They do not comprehend. Uh, they're, they're full of deceptions as a feast. They've given their bodies over to debauchery and adultery. You see, self-control is the antithesis of these desires that are causing the world to waste away. And now, I'm not going to sit up here and tell you what you should listen to, or what you should watch, or what you should do. Um, I, I, I don't listen to a lot of Christian music. I'm going to be real honest with you. Uh, I like to listen to things that I think are uh, going down a different path. And so I'm not going to sit up here and say, don't watch this, watch this, don't eat that, eat that. But here's, here's what I think we need to do when it comes to self-control is do we ever filter the things that we put into our life through the lens of the kingdom? You know, do we ever say, is this something that is, is wise, is good for me to be participating in, or do our desires just determine what we do? And I find that when I'm on autopilot, when I'm just coasting, like that's when I just kind of do whatever I want to do. I never, I never sort of invite God to weigh in on the situation. And so guys, there are things that are out there that aren't wise. Like, I don't, I don't watch horror movies. I think they're terrifying, but I also think that there's a spiritual world that goes on. I, don't, I just don't want that in my life. Like, it, you know, kids ask me, like, have you seen The Conjuring? I'm like, no. Like, that's terrible. I'm too much of a wuss for that, A. But B, like, I think there's other things that are going on that I don't necessarily need in my, in my existence. And so that may reveal to you that I'm a little bit of a, of a fundamentalist. I believe in a, a world that is spiritual. But if you read the New Testament, uh, so do Paul, so do Peter. Um, so I invite you to just, just weigh the things that you invite into your life through the lens of the kingdom. That's, that's not something that's, uh, you know, do this, don't do that. That's just some, simply wisdom, right? 
And so add, add to your knowledge self-control. Add to self-control endurance. Guys, so much of the heart of the New Testament is standing because of what Christ has done. It's, it's, it's holding firm to what he has done, even in the face of terrible uh, circumstances, even in the face of persecution. That Christ is inviting us to stand, to endure. If you read the book of Revelation, uh, there's, there, it begins with letters to churches. And, and the message over and over again that Jesus is saying is to him who endures, I will give uh, the blessing that, that, that comes in the, in the life to come. And so, guys, you're going to go through things that are beyond, beyond words, that, that people will come around you and they will just be like, I, I don't have anything to say. And sometimes all that we can do in that moment is, is, is rest on, the, on what God has shown himself to be and to endure and to stay. Add to endurance piety. Uh, what that basically means is our lives acknowledge, our, our lives acknowledge who God is and what he's done. Add to piety, mutual affection. This word is one we're familiar with. It means Philadelphia. Brotherly love, sisterly love, right? And and one of the hallmarks of the Christian is the welcoming of people from all social classes, all races, all walks of life into the family. And so guys, this to me takes some of the uh, weight off of evangelism. Like we think of like telling people about Jesus as this real scary thing, right? Like, we're like, oh, this is terrifying. I don't know. What if I don't know all the answers? I don't really know what to say. But Paul says, add mutual affection. Add love. When we start to see the kingdom of God as, as like, less of this, like, crazy, scary thing and more of, of our family. Like, when you invite people over to your house for dinner, you don't have to figure out how to be a member of your family. Right? Like, so, if Courtney and I, we invite somebody over to our house, I'm not sitting there contemplating, what does it mean to be a Graham before these people come over? And, and what Peter, I think, is saying here is that our, our love for one another is going to show people what God looks like. It's going to tell people about what the kingdom of God is. And, and, and so often we can take the, 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 the brunt of evangelism away when we talk about uh, we, and just inviting people into our family. Add to mutual affection, love. Uh, love here is listed as the climax of this, of this list but it is inherent in all of these. Uh, we only have faith because God has demonstrated his faithfulness, his love for us, and it is through the Spirit indwelling in us that we are able to uh, be recreated in his image with things like virtue, with goodness, with self-control, all these things. And what I want you to see is that Peter concludes this section with a warning. And something I think that should bring us uh, some, maybe, maybe a little bit of uh, pressure, a little bit of tension, and a little bit of comfort. Okay, and so if you are not growing in the manner that Peter has described above, uh, Peter does not have nice words. I want you to look at uh, beginning in verse uh, 9. Or actually, let's start in verse 8. But if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. Peter doesn't have nice words to say for people that aren't, that aren't taking this gift, this thing that they've been given and do anything with it. He says things like ineffective, unproductive, nearsighted, and blind. There's a very big word in there that says, if, if you possess these things in increasing measure. For, for Peter, this would have been like somebody in ancient Israel walking out of Egypt and just taking a seat in the middle of the wilderness. It's like, don't you, don't you want to keep going, dude? No, I'm good. I'm out of Egypt. We're good. 
But when you detract, when you just, uh, remove yourself from God's uh, loving provision, when we remove ourselves from His care, then we become unproductive, we become uh, ineffective, we're blind, we're short-sighted. One of the main reasons that Peter is writing this particular letter is because people that were in the environment that he was writing to were denying that God would ever judge. They were saying, no, God doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't judge. Uh, that won't happen. And what Peter's saying, oh, 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 there's a judgment, but it's only reserved for those who don't do anything. You know, Jesus will tell a story, and he says that, that, that a master gave out talents, gave out things to be used, um, and, and the only one that he condemns is the one who buries it in the sand. The warning is real, and it is, it's kind of scary. But, but here's the part that should bring you some comfort. It says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't get tripped up on those words, calling and election. We're not confirming them in God's eyes, as we've discussed. Because of what Jesus has done, they are secure, they are firm, they are done. We confirm them as we grow in our relationship with God. Uh, just like in, in, in my marriage, like I, I've been married for five years now. I, I'm more secure, more trusting in that relationship than I was uh, four years ago. It doesn't mean I wasn't trusting then. It just means that that has grown even deeper, has grown even greater. And that's what the kind of thing that God is inviting us into. But he says that you will never stumble. As we follow him, as we wrap our lives around his story, our relationship is strengthened. We are more confident the more that we, as Peter says, make every effort. And so effort doesn't become this thing where we're trying to earn God's love. We're trying to say, God, look how great I am. Look at this. Effort is the response. Effort is saying, God, you are so great. And therefore, your love so amazing, so divine, demands everything that I have. The only way you fail is by doing, by doing nothing. And I wonder how many of us are... are are sort of resting on this badge, this, this sort of uh, thing that doesn't, New Testament certainly doesn't bear witness to, of like, okay, I've prayed a prayer, and I guess that makes me good. It, it's almost like going backwards in time. You enter into this sort of primeval cult of like, okay, how do I keep God happy? What do I have to do? What sacrifices do I have to make? But I hope you can see God in light of the whole story, that his promises are unshakable and true, that he has shown himself to be righteous by his dealings on the cross, by his resurrection of his son, that he has vindicated him. But guys, we cannot be idle. There's no neutral ground where our, 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 you know, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. But if we will respond to him, we, we can't fail. Like, that's what Peter's saying. He's like, just do something. It's like, you can't fail. Like, stop sitting there on your hands. You can do something. Make every effort. God will do the hard part. He will do the recreating. He will shape and mold you. And guys, let me just say, he will actually do it. I've, I've been a Christian now for um, 11 years. And there are things that I brought into our, my relationship with Christ that I wish I never would have brought in, that I struggled with for years after becoming a Christian, that I thought, I'm never going to be free of this. And, and let me just tell you, God has redeemed those parts of my life. He's doing it still. He's still showing me things that I'm like, oh my gosh, like that's still in there? Are you serious? And, and, and even still, I, some of the behaviors I'm able to control and able to modify is self-control, right? But, but then I see that there's something in my heart that is not of God. 
And as you walk on this journey, God's not going to say, oh, 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 I, my grace is for everyone but you. He has done the hard work. He has died on the cross so that you could know him, so that you could experience life and truth in his eternal kingdom, yes, but in his present reigning kingdom right now, yes and amen. And so guys, if you're struggling and you feel like you just never get it right and that God surely can't be pleased with you, can I just, can I just invite you to see what Peter is pointing you to? That he knows. Like he knows it's going to be messy. He knows you're broken. So the cross was broken and messy. He is not abandoning you. If you will walk, if you will uh, make your days about him, about glorifying his name, if you will make every effort in your life to follow him, he will not fail. Let's pray. Jesus, you are beyond um, anything that we could ever imagine, anything that we could ever need. And so God, where our lives have not declared your goodness and your grace, God, help us to repent here this morning. Father, as we, as we move to gathering around your table, Lord, help us to see your Son glorified, beautiful. God, that you're not inviting us just to, just to exist, God, just to, to punch our ticket to heaven, but you have so much more, you have so much more purpose, so much more story to write for us. God, I ask that you, you above all, would, would be glorified in our lives, God, would be worshipped in our lives, would be sought after in our lives, Father. Lord, for those that don't know you here this morning, I pray that you would show them that that, that righteousness, God, that faithfulness to your promises is for them, is for you, is for me. And Jesus, for those of us who, who may be living like you don't exist, God, who may be sitting on our hands, maybe unproductive and ineffective, God, blind and short-sighted, God, I pray that you would help us to see that you have so much more for us. God, we pray all these things in your beautiful name. Amen.